under heaven, so the situation is excellent. And I think precisely today, when there is obviously disorder under heaven, political disorder, potentially economic, ecological, and so on, that we should uh, follow this Mao statement, not in the sense of false optimism, but not, don't lose nerves. That you should try to see the new opening here. Like, precisely in such confused situations, we get a chance. One way that I always when people wonder why I'm saying this. One example would be, now Avital will be mad again, let's learn from Trump. You know what Trump is really doing? Mostly, he doesn't directly break the law, but in any civilized society, you have explicit laws, but then you have, of course, that's the life in a community. There are complex, unwritten rules, habits, and so on, about how to apply the law. And Trump does, breaks, not the law, breaks these unwritten habits. He does something that you cannot say is directly against the law, but it's obvious that to use, to use the standard expression, this is not how it was meant to be used. For example, you remember when, it's already two, three months ago, when he declared, how was it called, state of emergency, national emergency, because of the immigrant threat, uh, some conservatives were shocked by it, and they were right. They said, wait a minute, this, because, you know, proclaiming state of emergency was meant not if... 400 people from Honduras approach Mexican border. It was meant when there is a mega natural catastrophe, a new <coughs> war or whatever. Uh, but some conservatives got into a panic. You know why? Because they said, wait a minute. What if the next democratic president will proclaim, uh, will proclaim a state of emergency for global warming? Yes, exactly here we should learn from Trump, you know. He taught us how to not even break the rules, but break the, violate the unwritten background. Okay, but let's go on. So, uh, I will focus today I, not on the general we, uh, outline of the situation we are in. We know we are in some kind of apocalyptic times, we are approaching some zero point in ecology, it's clear, in, in uh, new developments, in uh, uh, digital technology, m controlling us and so on, and in uh, with question of immigration, moving, uh, people moving around borders and so on and so on. But that we all know. I want just to focus on how we experience these confused times in our ideology. First, I will repeat, maybe you don't know, it's just an old formula of mine that I like. You know, Marx's famous formula of religion as the opium of the people. First, be careful. Marx doesn't say opium for the people, because this would have meant this primitive idea that there is some 
evil secret society of priests or whatever which fabricates ideology. No, Marx's basic rule is ideology is not simple external manipulation. You manipulate yourself. Even the Stalinists, even cynics secretly believe in some kind of ideology. But I think today we should expand or rephrase Marx's formula. Today we have two new modes of the opium of the people. And you can guess which are the two. Opium and the people. <laughs> Literally. First, it's opium in the broad sense of the term from these daily pills that we are taking, Xanax or whatever, up to uh, uh, psychic uh, pills to calm you down, more serious, up to serious drugs, crack, opium, and so on and so on. And I think it's already our daily bread. I read some analysis that in the United States, in a typical campus, 70 to 80 percent of people there are already on some kind of drugs. Now, this tells a lot that even our normal psychic reproduction is no longer possible without uh, support in chemistry. The second opium are the people, populism. Uh, but this is well known. Now I approach to my topic. I claim that maybe the most dangerous form of ideology today are the manipulations with happiness. Everything can be justified as an instrument, maybe sometimes painful instrument, to make people happy. This is in China, but not only in China, in the West also. The main justification of the control of public space, of, uh, of, of internet and so on, that it will disturb the people, it will make the people uh, unhappy. So censorship is justified as a mode of protecting individuals from traumatic experiences which threaten to disturb their happiness. Let me tell you, I'm sorry if some of you know it, I use this example in one of my books, how I got into trouble uh, because of this. Uh, I read a report in Canadian media, I think it was uh, some two, three years, yes, three years ago, 2016. It was a quite terrifying case when a white guy, his disgusting guy, his name is Bradley Barton, was accused of killing uh, 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 an indigenous sex worker, as they say today. Incidentally, I don't like, I prefer prostitute. You know why? You see, this is another of these protecting us from uh, traumatic news. Of course, I know why they say sex worker. It's not so offensive. The word prostitute has certain connotation. But the bad thing is that it normalizes the situation. Oh, what's the problem? Selling your body is just like selling your... You know, it normalizes the thing. So, okay, she killed her while they were making love. And uh, uh, it was disgusting because there was no denial. She didn't deny anything. His lawyers, this Bradley, this guy's lawyers, instructed him to confess anything but just to claim that it was that the rough sex was consensual and that the woman aroused him so much that he couldn't control himself. He wasn't responsible for anything. And now comes 
for me, the truly traumatic part. Uh, what he did is, while they were making love, he, to be extremely vulgar, pulled his penis out, out and inserted another thing into her vagina, a big knife, and then slowly cut her up. It's disgusting, but now comes, if you think this is horrible, disgusting, wait, how did they tell you, say, you ain't hurt nothing yet. Uh, you know what? It's breathtaking. I couldn't believe it. You know what? His defenders did, and the court allowed it. To prove by a detailed analysis of cuts around the deceased woman's vagina, to prove it that it was done not as a conscious act, but in a trance. I warn you, this is hard, but nothing. This guy. By, they brought her torso, real body, into the court, set it like, let's say you are the jurors, set it on the table, and the defense lawyers, are, you see this card, you see that card, and so on, and so on. First, there is here a clear anti-feminist and uh, racism. Can you even imagine if the victim were to be an upper-class white lady, that they would have done this? Okay, it's this, and uh, yeah, incidentally, just so that you don't worry, the guy walked out of, of the courtroom free. It's really disgusting, I mean. Uh, but now I come to my point. When I, and I, even I, have, I have certain limits. <laughs> that is to say, even if there were to be pictures available, that's too much even for me. I would never have used them. But I just did what I did to you now. I described even more vaguely the situation. And a couple of times I was once even interrupted, attacked by this pseudo-deep argument that by describing what happened, I was, I have shown solidarity with the brutal act that in a pornographic way I was repeating the crime. I don't buy this. You know why? And the matter is more serious because I think that when disgusting things like this one happen, the only way to really hit the people is up to a certain degree. I'm not saying you should show the torso there and so on. You have to shock them. I don't believe in this soft downplaying that you just give a soft description and so on and so on without hurting anyone. You neutralize it in some way. Or uh, here I like to quote George Orwell, I don't always like him, but he has a wonderful sentence in the foreword to his animal farm, where he wrote that, quote Orwell, if liberty means anything, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And, you know, because, uh, again, I don't think criticism, when you try to arouse somebody, works without this, at least a little bit, of this shocking moment. I think I told to the students already in my class another example. For example, when we talk about Holocaust, Auschwitz, and so on, I can tell you what triggered me. One thing is still in gas chambers, blah, 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 all that, okay. But you know what was the detail, I read it in some history of German concentration camps, that shocked me. 
that the Germans produced serially, serially, I mean, as an instrument in factories. Uh, you know, the nutcracking instrument, like, like round and then two handles to crack nets. Okay, they produced testicle crackers. Sorry, but this was the detail for me, which shocks you. And I think that, uh, you see, this is why I think that I don't care if I ruin your happiness. You have to be at least in a certain way and so on and so on. Uh, you have to be shocked. I don't, I mean, your happiness has to be, has to be disturbed. Now, let me go a little bit more theoretically even into this. Now comes a more substantial line, because I will try to problematize the very notion of happiness. If there is a figure which stands out, I think, as one of the heroes of our time, it is Christopher Wiley, I hope I pronounce it correctly, a gay Canadian vegan who at 24 came up, up with an idea that led to the foundation of you know what they did, Cambridge Analytica, a data analytics firm that went on to claim a major role in the Leave campaign for British, Britain's UN membership, and before it, it was crucial in Donald Trump's uh, election campaign, and so on and so on. Wiley's plan was to break into Facebook, <laughs> harvest the Facebook profiles of millions of people in the United States, and then to use this information to create sophisticated uh, profiles of millions of people and then target them with political ads and so on and so on. At a certain point, Wiley was genuinely freaked out. He said, I quote, it's insane. The company has created psychological profiles of 230 million Americans and now they want to work with Pentagon. It's like Nixon on steroids, end of quote. Now, okay, we know this, but what makes this story so fascinating is first that it combines elements which we usually perceive as opposites. You know, if you listen to Steve Bannon, how he presents old right, it's always this anti technological, now I have the lowest blow against you that you can imagine, he presents himself as this uh, anti-digital exploitation. His point is that if guys from Silicon Valley win, our democracy is over, ordinary people will be totally manipulated, and so on and so on. Then comes, the, you know to which philosopher he was? Heidegger! No. Steve Bannon is positively referred to Heidegger. He said, we have to learn from Heidegger of the dangers of technology and so on and so on. He has shown to a journalist, who, German journalist, to fascinate him, some volume, A Life of Heidegger, and says, read this guy, and you will see why Silicon Valley is danger. I apologize, it's vulgar, of course. But what interests me is this, this open inconsistency. On the one hand, so the alt-right idea is that what is behind the liberals are these uh, new corporate guys like Facebook, uh, Facebook, Zuckerberg, whatever you want, who all manipulate us and we should uh, allow ordinary people to 
create the space where they can resist all these manipulations and so on and so on. And uh, like uh, in this populist vein, this is maybe my fervent cons uh, favorite conservative publicity for beef, meat, eating beef, that I saw years ago on American TV. I loved it. It's like uh, countryside picnic, countryside music, uh, they roast beef, blah, 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 and then just an inscription. Beef, real food for real people. Kind of like this. What I, but you see the first big inconsistency, and this you should always bear in mind. Precisely the people who justify themselves as the voice of the ordinary people against technological manipulations and so on. Now we learn from Cambridge Analytica and so on, they use the most sophisticated technological manipulations and so on, and so on uh, uh, to win. Uh, now, second thing uh, uh, that I find even more shocking is the bizarre intersection of research on topics like love and kindness with defense and intelligent interest. Why does a research into happiness draw so much interest from British and American intelligence agencies like DARPA, US government defense advanced research project agency and so on and so on. The researcher who personifies this intersection is Martin Seligman. In 98, he founded the positive psychology movement dedicated to the study of psychological traits and habits that foster authentic happiness and well-being, spawning an enormous industry of popular self-help books. At the same time, his work attracted interest and funding from the military as a central part of its soldiers' soldier resilience initiative. So even Cambridge Analytica, originally, it was a group investigating human happiness. What makes human happy and so on and so on. And uh, this intersection, I claim, now comes my more problematic radical thesis. This intersection, guys who want to manipulate us and so on technologically for political purposes are guys who began with researching happiness. It's not externally imposed on the behavioral sciences by bad political manipulators. It's not, oh, first the guys wanted sincerely to study happiness, then bad military secret intelligence manipulators came and abused it. It is implied by their immanent orientation. Another programmatic quote from that evil guy, Zeligman. The aim of these programs is not simply to analyze our subjective states of mind, but to discover means by which we can be nudged in this direction of our true, in the direction of our true well-being as positive psychologists understand it, which includes attributes like resilience and optimism, end of quote. So after the outbreak of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, all these events and tendencies were, of course, extensively covered by the liberal media. And the overall image emerging from it, combined with what we also know about the link between the latest developments in biogenetics, provides a terrifying image of new forms of social control, 
which make the good old 20th century totalitarianism a rather primitive and clumsy machine of control. The biggest achievement of the new cognitive military complex is that direct and obvious oppression is no longer necessary. Individuals are much better controlled and nudged in the desired direction when they continue to experience themselves as free and autonomous agents. Now, what are the implications of this? As is often the case, a developing third world country spelled out the socio-political consequences of this notion of happiness. It's quite a sad story. It's the kingdom of Bhutan, you know, not Nepal, but the smaller one, north of India. Uh, two, uh, 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 two decades ago, the kingdom of Bhutan decided to focus on, no longer on gross national product, GNP, but gross national happiness, GNH. The idea was, again, the brainchild of their ex-king, who sought to steer Bhutan into the modern world while preserving its unique identity. With the pressure of globalization and materialism mounting, uh, the popular king ordered a state agency to calculate how happy the kingdom's 670,000 people were. Officials said they had already conducted a survey of around 1,000 people and draw up a list of parameters from being, uh, for being happy, similar to the development index which is tracked by the United Nations. Uh, but uh, already here we have... No, you will say what's so bad about it. There was already here a very ominous twist. Uh, then they discovered, two years later, that the main disturbance to their harmonious social being is uh, some ethnic minority. And they did, of course, a nice ethnic cleansing just on behalf of, uh, on behalf of uh, raising gross national happiness and so on and so on. Uh, uh, but it's not enough, again, to say that this is the political exploitation of happiness. I want to go a step further and claim that the notion of happiness itself is very ambiguous in its implications. Let me give you a couple, maybe you know some of them, I apologize in advance, examples. I was, maybe I even used this story here 10 years ago. I was some 15, 20 years ago, I think it was uh, Lithuania, Vilnius, their capital, and we debated when are people happy. And we came to a nice unequivocal result. Czechoslovakia, in those darkest Husak years, you know, in 68 they had almost this democratic socialism, it was crushed by the Soviet intervention, and then they had those 10, 15 years of so-called renormalization. Why were people, one can seriously claim, happy there? Three conditions, I claim. We establish them. First, for happiness, your material needs should be basically satisfied. Basically satisfied, but not too satisfied. If you get, for example, coffee all the time in the supermarket, you get used to it, no? 
It must be like that once a month you don't get coffee. Because this makes you aware all the other days how lucky you are to have it. And this was exactly the situation there. People lived a safe life. It was a kind of a modest welfare society with limitations which precisely reminded you how happy you are. We in the developed West don't have these limitations, so we are not so happy. Uh, second thing, second extremely important feature, we all agreed on this. For people to be happy, you shouldn't have democracy which is taken seriously. Because if democracy really works, okay, even if it doesn't really, if it works in the sense that ordinary people themselves experience themselves as the one who ultimately really decide their fate. That's not good. You worry too much. You have to have some figure of other political authority on whom you can put the blame for everything. And that was in those dark years the role of the Communist Party. As a friend from Czechoslovakia told me, even if the weather is like here, and I blame him, two, three years, two, three days ago, all that storm and so on. Oh, Chris is guilty, you know, fuck it, you know. Like, <laughs> communists were blamed for everything. This makes, and I remember from my own country, it was a little bit of this. This makes life very easy, you know. Like, you know whom to blame. You don't feel responsible. This is second and third condition of happiness. You must have an image of paradise, of place where things are really good, and this paradise has to be at a proper distance. Not too close, not easily accessible, because if it is, then you see it's basically the same sheet as where we are, but also not too distant, because then it's just a vague dream. They had it. It was West Germany, of course, you know, because communist authorities in the 80s at least tolerated watching Western TV and so on and so on. I seriously think that all these three features constituted a kind of perfect happiness. I, uh, because at the same time, you know, it was no longer the old totalitarianism. You were allowed your private life, your niche. If you didn't mess with politics, it was relatively comfortable to live there. Uh, in this sense, to make a place further, I think that what disturbs happiness? Desire. By desire, I mean the force which compels you to move beyond, to disturb this fragile, but nonetheless, stability of happiness. To give you an example that I use all the time. Let's say you live a relatively happy life, not being in love. Love is a catastrophe. Uh, you know, like, you drink with friends in the evening, maybe you have here and there one night stands and so on. Life is nice. In the, your job goes good. Then all of a sudden you fall passionately in love. Can you imagine a worst catastrophe? All the balance of your life is disturbed. You worry only about this. You are either jealous or nervous or whatever. You lose concentration for other things and so on and so on. Happiness is thus in itself confused, indeterminate, very ambiguous notion. I like this German anecdote. Uh, a German immigrant to the United States is asked, are you happy? You know what's his answer? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy here, aber glücklich bin ich nicht. Uh. 
Like, it's not the same. So, I think that, now I will become a Christian, happiness is a pagan category. For pagans, the goal of life is, life is to live a happy life. The idea to live uh, happily ever after, I think, is a Christianized version of paganism. And religious experience and political activity themselves are considered the highest form of happiness. No wonder that Dalai Lama itself, and here I have problems with him, begins almost all his popular books with some kind of a gospel of happiness. He usually begins with all living beings strive towards happening. Sorry, towards happiness. My instant answer is maybe all living beings, but definitely not humans. If there is, and that's Freudian lesson of death drive, if something characterizes us humans is whenever happiness comes too close, you find a way to, you find a way to, to destroy it. Uh, why? Because uh, now I will try to be a little bit more precise. You know when we are happy, I claim, let's say you have an official goal, you strive for something, but secretly we all know that getting what you dream about is by definition always a nightmare. So I think happiness is when you almost get it, but miss it, and it's crucial that A, you can blame somebody else for missing it, but then you are happy for almost getting it, but nonetheless even more happy for uh, not uh, getting it. This is, I think, the bad conformity. Happiness is a way to avoid your desire. Uh, uh, let me give you here some, uh, uh, some uh, political examples here. To provoke my Czech friends, I claim that the Soviet intervention in 68, which crushed the so-called Prague Spring, saved the Prague Spring. You know why? Because imagine Soviet Union not intervening. Sooner or later, it would have been a fiasco. Either the, com the liberal communist of Czechoslovakia would have to simply capitulate to the West, or they would have to set some limits. Sorry, guys, that's the limit of democratization, and so on and so on. And I, I, I claim that for reasons of social analysis that can develop it now, that a dream of a different so democratic socialism that would successfully compete with the West was not a serious option there. But precisely because it was crushed, it remained as a dream. And I think uh, it, I, it was the same with the last elections in United Kingdom. I spoke with some Labour Party members who told me that this is the best thing that could have happened to the Labour Party. Corbyn almost won, but he didn't win. <laughs> you know, and they can say, you see, we almost make it, we make a chance, and so on and so on. I was told that in the circle around Corbyn, it was a great sigh of relief, you know, that we didn't have, uh, that we didn't have to do it. And uh, we have a Greek lady here. I want to ask her, the rumor I heard from people immediately around Tsipras is that Tsipras called that referendum with the hope that he will lose it. 
that it was a shock for them that they got it. They wanted just barely to miss it, so that then they could say, you see, we, we, we were forced to surrender to Europe, why didn't you leave us in power? You know what they would have avoided by losing the referendum? The horrible fact that they had to do the austerity then, you know. So I claim that uh, this is uh, uh, the structure of happiness. In other words, first, truth and happiness don't go together and desire and happiness don't go together. By desire, I don't mean just desiring something, I mean what Lacan formulates as the ethics of psychoanalysis. Stand by your desire, do not compromise your desire. Maybe the only serious thing that we can learn when you are in psychoanalytic treatment is to stand by your desire. Not to desire something, but then to organize a failure so that then you can say, oh, we just missed it, and so on and so on. You have to be heroic enough to stand by your uh, <clears throat> to stand by your desire. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> uh, sorry, I think that uh, I think that upon a closer look, you can see that happiness, even in its most terrestrial version, always has to rely on some figure of the big other. I don't have time to prove this now. This is why I think Christianity works. That's not the Christianity I like. That's the perverted Christianity. It works how? My favorite cri Christian theologist, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, put it quite openly. He said, I quote from his book, Orthodoxy, the outer ring of Christianity is a rigid guard of ethical abnegations and professional priests. But inside that inhuman guard, you will find the old human life dancing like children and drinking wine like men. For Christianity is the only frame for pagan freedom. He says something very simple and deeply true here. Pagans openly asserted pleasures. That's why they necessarily, the pagan view ends in melancholy. Carpe diem, enjoy the day, because you know that tomorrow, or if not tomorrow, at the end, it will be shit. But if you have heaven, Jesus Christ, and so on, uh, the function of it is not to spoil your pleasures, but to render them palpable and easily uh, available. And that's what intelligent Catholic uh, preachers know. I read a very intelligent defense of this slightly oppressive Catholic morality, where they claimed that's the only way to save uh, sexual pleasure. If it's simply allowed, you end up with Marquis de Sade. And if you read Marquis de Sade, you will learn that it's pure mechanic production of pleasure, which has nothing to do with sexual, intense sexual enjoyment, and so on and so on. So the idea is this one. Uh, this is even how I think in a subtle, perverted way, Christianity, uh, Christianity uh, sells you the Christ sacrifice in its perverted version. I hope there is another reading. The message is this one. 
in pagan universe you enjoy, but you have to pay the price, old age, death, and so on. In Christianity, we are lucky to have a guy, Jesus Christ, who already paid the price. So we can just enjoy. We have to pretend that we follow Christ, but it meant when we are called to, for our desires, we can say, yes, we sinned, but sorry, guys, that guy already paid the price. We don't have to pay it. And that's why, my, you know what's the core of Christianity, it's a wonderful, an Italian friend taught it to me, that what is uh, Italian Catholic girls praying to, to Virgin Mary? O thou who has conceived without making love, allow me to make love without conceiving, you know. <laughs> Always, uh, and it works, it works, this how, you know, happiness, as Chesterton said, even sexual pleasure can be enjoyed only in this sense, uh, can only be enjoyed at a, at a distance. Now, let's make a step further here. Unfortunately, I claim, even LGBT+, plus, whose basic goals I fully support, sometimes the way, the way transgender movement effectively functions, it falls into this trap of happiness. I think that the great thing of authentic transgender heroes is that, my God, it's an authentic heroism. I read recently an interview with a transgender guy who is not selling us this cheap pseudo-liberal stuff. Now that I changed my sex, I'm happy, I can really enjoy. No, he says, no, now it's she. She says, can you imagine how horrible it was for me to live in a body that I hate and so on. And the process is extremely painful. For me, LGBT are ethical heroes, my God. But not in the predominant ideology. You know where we witness this ideology? There is a movie made last year, a Belgian movie with a simple title, The Girl. Uh, directed by Lucas Dont, D-H-O-N-T. It's a film about a 15-year-old girl. He was born as a boy, and he, she was dreaming to become a ballerina. This film was brutally attacked as, her, as uh, uh, transgender pornography, satisfying the Venus male, male sadist instincts. You know why? Because it focuses on the suffering. The story is this one. The girl suffers a lot. It's a painful process of changing from boy to girl, but that's the unpleasant thing. You cannot blame the surroundings, you know. Her father fully supports her. Her ballet teacher fully supports her, and nonetheless things go wrong. Of course, Many official feminists and transgender attacked it as, oh, it's a subtle propaganda against, and so on, and so on. Uh, and then, if, you know even what didn't help? That this girl, because the movie is based on a, clo it closely follows a real-life story, this girl exploded and wrote a, a letter to the public media saying, saying, sorry, this is exact reproduction of how I felt it in my life, nonetheless. Uh, the attacks went on. It's again, they wanted to save happiness. And that's what I don't like in 
LGTB+. This, to, I simplify it, I know, but the basic idea is we, in ourselves, we would have been happy if it were not for the external imposition of patriarchy, binary logic, constraining us to two gender identities, and so on and so on. If we get rid of this, we will be happy. We will have a fully satisfied sexual life. I think that the true heroism of LGBT+, plus, I think, no, it's, they see much more than it may appear. I spoke with many of them. They are, their message is not, we are crazy, we want to suffer or what, but that in them, in their experience, a distortion, perversion, suffering, which is inscribed into human sexuality as such, comes out. They are, as it were, sex at its purest, sex at its most antagonistic. That's why I really hate, I'm back at LGBT+, plus, a happiness version of the transgender transition, brutally presented by, a couple of weeks ago now, Gillette Company made another of these politically correct uh, ads, oh, everybody likes it. It's incidentally another example of a perfect co cohabitation between transgender ideology of happiness and the biggest corporate interest. And the, sto the story is they make an ad where a real-life transgender guy, but here the change went into the other direction. A girl who became a boy is taught by his, before her father, how to raise himself. He is proud. Now I am a man enough. I need to shave myself. And the father teaches him to do it. Of course, it's Gillette and so on and so on. But uh, <coughs> here is the... the the citation, which, because, uh, yeah, this guy, to him, this really happened, acts in the commercial. Here is a quote, uh, and incidentally, this quote was made in Toronto. So maybe this is some reason why Toronto gave birth to Jordan Peterson, but that's another story. <laughs> I will not go into that. A quote, I always knew I was different. I didn't know there was a term for the type of person that I was. I went into my transition just wanting to be happy. I'm glad I'm at the point where I'm able to shave. I'm at the point in my manhood where I'm actually happy. I shot this ad for Gillette and wanted to include my father, who has been one of the greatest supporters throughout my transition, encouraging me to be confident and live authentically as my best self. End of quote. One has to listen carefully to these words used here. All of a sudden, you know, that's another, now I will be really evil, there is another contradiction in the superficial version of LGBT ideology. On the one hand, if you are a man, boy, I mean, who simply identifies as men, 
You old or vice versa, a girl who identifies as girl, woman, you are constantly bombarded by the social constructionist message, you know. Remember, uh, gender identity is not uh, uh, biological, genetic, it's a contingent social construct, and so on and so on. But it's a subtle difference if you are in the position of that girl from, from Don's film, for example, a man or a, 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 a subject who cannot identify with what at least appears to him or her as his, her, their, whatever, natural sex, then they never say, oh, what's the problem? Sex is a contingent social construction. Let's reconstruct you. Because from the cheap standpoint of happiness, the solution would have been, so sex is a discursive construct, so you will be much more happy, happy and avoiding your, uh, you will avoid all the painful experience of transition if we simply performatively, I'm here viciously using Judith Butler's terms, if we performatively reconstruct, refashion you into what you already are biologically, you know, uh, a subtle difference is at work here, that in this case, they all of a sudden became, I refer here to a word which in today's jargon is the worst thing you can say, they become essentialists. You see, the guy says here, uh, I live authentically at my, as my best self. All of a sudden, the presupposition is, Forget about social construction and so on. Look deep into yourself. Each of us has a true self. And the point is, and of course, they know, that's the whole point, this true self does not fit necessarily your biological sexual identity. But there still is, there still is a true self. And there is another evil observation at I want to make here. Did you notice how in both these stories it's a strange uh, uh, reactivation of patriarchy. Crucial for the transition is the good father. I remember here Jacques Lacan who says, maybe Alenka you know better how that the only tolerable whatever sexual relationship can occur under the guise of the name of the father. Now we learn that even, this should be the LGBT plus version, the only tolerable to make transition, transgender transition tolerable, you need a good, well-functioning name of the father and so on. Okay, I will not go, I already did it in my class, into how I'm not making fun here of LGBT. Philosophically, it's easy to resolve this tension between social constructionism and all of a sudden essentialism. Everybody who knows German idealism knows the solution, which is, and this is, again, another of my critical points against, against, uh, 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 against LGBT plus ideology. Authentic LGBT people are well aware of this. Uh, that, uh, of course, gender is symbolically constructed. It's in some sense a choice. Your gender identity is not biologically determined. Otherwise, we wouldn't have people who found themselves in a, this predicament of wanting to change their sex or whatever. But uh, 
being a Troy, don't identify too quickly Troy's in the most radical sense with this easy performative choosing, you know, as sometimes cheap LGBT plus propaganda claims. Oh, it means playful identity. Today I am gay. A year from now I will try with bisexual identity, then whatever and so on. No. Uh, authentic free choice is, by definition, we learn this from Kant, from Schelling and so on, great German idealists. Uh, authentic free choice, at its most radical, is always experienced as necessity. Which is why, to give you a simple example, even love is such a traumatic choice. Love is a choice, of course, you cannot be forced, compelled to fall in love. But just look into yourself what you felt if you were really passionately in love. You never decide to fall in love, like, sorry to be vulgar, let me look around, you, 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 fuck it, I will choose you. No, you, all of a sudden you discover that you already are in love. The choice always already happens, which means it's an unconscious choice. That's for me a very simple Freudian solution of is it then social constructionism or determinism? It is a free determinism. From the standpoint of your conscious ego, it's determined. But at a deeper level, you are, you are uh, responsible for it. Sl I'm slowly uh, 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 yeah, coming back to the conclusion. So uh, uh, another point of, so uh, yes, just to make something clear, this doesn't mean that I'm some kind of a masochist who doesn't want to be happy or whatever. I'm just saying that unfortunately at a certain point we have to make the choice between happiness or and whatever we call this, true freedom, creativity, and so on. I'm here a pessimist. You cannot have it both ways. But, uh, uh, so another way to keep happiness, again, to be, that's my lesson, happiness is an inconsistent category, which means to be relatively happy, you have to, you know, it's like that check situation. You have to be reminded from time to time of the bad things, of not total happiness. And to conclude, I know I've sold this story a lot of times, but not yet here. I will give you the ultimate theological example. Thomas Aquinas, you know, the big Catholic theologist, Summa Theologica and so on. He, in his classic Summa Theologica, again, he debates a wonderful point. I love theology for this. The idea is after you die and if you did proper acts or were predestined, whichever theory you buy, let's say you find yourself in heaven. In heaven, according to Christian dogma, you will be not as powerful as God, but almost knowing everything. Like you will not be in our human situation of finitude where our knowledge is limited. Your space of knowledge will be broadened incredibly. So Thomas Aquinas approaches this problem. Will you, up in heaven, will you be able to see, to observe, 
the suffering of those wretched souls in hell. And this is a problem. Aquinas is not an idiot. He is immediately aware of what the problem is. Because if, uh, at the same time, the dogma is that everything that you experience makes you happy in paradise. So Aquinas immediately confronts the problem, how come that seeing terrible things going on in hell can make you happy? Are we perverts in heaven or what? He found a typically sophistic pseudo-solution. That we have to distinguish two modes of, two modes of uh, satisfaction. One is the sadistic bad satisfaction. I hate you, I see you suffering, haha, I'm happy. But the, he claims our satisfaction when we observe wretched souls suffering in hell will not be of these times, it will simply be our satisfaction at the majesty of divine justice. You see how just God did, and so on, and so on. I, evil as I am, I have here a, a different solution, which I think is much more convincing. Uh, what if, first, let's take it from the standpoint of hell. All intelligent people, you have hints of this even in Dante, and we in Slovenia, we have first-hand knowledge of it, because there are close to Italian border in Slovenia, some subterranean caves called Scotian caves, very wild, and it's confirmed that Dante himself, the real one, before, just before writing uh, the book, or was it not, I exaggerate a little bit, the idea is that he visited those caves and got the idea for... There's about 12 caves in, uh, in the region, and each one claims that Dante was here in <laughs> Okay, okay, but let's say, in one, let's say we, Slovenia, have the original, the original hell there. No, <laughs> I may put it like this. Okay, uh, so uh, even in Dante you feel this, that fuck paradise, the third part of Divina Commedia is extremely boring. All interesting things happen in, happen in, in, in Inferno. Let's go, let's go on. Uh, 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 so, uh, let's go on. So, maybe the solution is this one. That's my favorable theological dream. What is, paradise is a pretty boring place. What is, all the interesting action happens in hell. What if we read it wrongly? What if, burning oil means permanent orgy, barbecue, you roast meat, whatever, but it's a problem. We shouldn't uh, acknowledge it. So, how do we account for that scene from Thomas Aquinas that blessed souls in paradise uh, observe? Uh, I claim this. You have there a permanent orgy, you drink, you have sex, beef, barbecue, oil, and so on. And then once a week, let us say, devil's administrator comes and says, sorry guys, now for a quarter of an hour, we will be observed from heaven, so pretend that you suffer. They say, yeah, yeah, oh, oh, oh. Then after a quarter of an hour, they say, okay, fun is back, and so on. <laughs> but now I come back a little bit more seriously to why do they need this in hell? Sorry, in heaven. For the same, the, the, in the same way that in Czechoslovakia, once a month, there should be no coffee in the stores, and so on. We are like in paradise, Western paradise, permissive, relative welfare in spite of the crisis, 
And to enjoy it fully, although it's pretty boring, non-creative life, we have to be reminded from time to time that we are lucky to be here. So what in our lives is how are we made aware of this? I think this is the function of horror movies and especially of TV news. You, you know, all this third world TV news, uh, rapes, Somalia, children slaughtered and so on, are our reminder, you don't like it here, you think we are in alienated consumerist society, take a look there. It functions strictly as a temporary look into hell. Now, to slowly conclude, let me give you my final example of ideology at its worst today. I don't like the lady. Although it's a very readable novel. I think it's the nastiest ideological novel that you can imagine. Although I watched the TV series and read the novel and I enjoyed it. I'm of course talking about Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. It's ideology at its purest. Why? Of course it's a just cause. But I think the way it works, it's a perfect example of what Frederick Jameson, our friend, called nostalgia for the present. You know what's the story about? It depicts in near future a United States where Christian fundamentalists took over and the way women are tortured, exploited, and so on and so on. I will leave aside the aspect of how much of this, the way women are, oppressed there and so on, is an additional source of pleasure. I admit my responsibility. I enjoy new ways to screw women, not in the vulgar sense, but to make life. And I can claim, I can secretly enjoy it because, oh, it's just a depiction of horrible fundamentalist rule and so on. Most of my friends have the same reaction, but I want to ask you something else. Uh, uh, the function ideological of the novel, and especially TV series, is to make us feel good in our present society. It's, it imagines a dystopian present, so that all the time we are reminded, my God, nonetheless, in what a wonderful, uh, uh, still permissive and so on society we live. It never raises the question, which is for me the crucial question. But sorry, guys. Uh, new religious fundamentalism, or alt-right, or Donald Trump, but they did not fall from the sky. How could it happen that our, this beautiful, tolerant, liberal politics, I think Donald Trump is the ultimate fetish. In what sense? Precisely this almost naive Freudian sense where, you know, there is another question, how to interpret this in a non-naive way it can be done, but the basic idea is that Fetish is the last thing, the object that you, in Freud's case, a young boy, small boy, you see before you notice, okay, in that case is that the woman doesn't have a penis, let's say before you notice a crack, an antagonism, and so on. And I claim in this precise sense, Trump is a liberal fetish. This absolute fascination by Trump exists because Trump, Donald Trump, the horror of Trump, is the last thing that a liberal sees before he sees class struggle. And that's why Trump won. He mobilized for the right, the class struggle dimension, which precisely liberal, liberal left 
was ignoring. So, if you leave, give me just another two, three minutes, I want to repeat another old joke, but to give a different twist to it, just a hint into what should we do to get out of this. The big enemy of me here is identity politics. And uh, if you think I'm crazy, I will tell you that the best definition that I can imagine of fascism is that fascism is identity politics transposed onto relations within classes. Its classes shouldn't struggle. Every social class should be acknowledged in its own proper place, you know. But uh, I will conclude, of course, in my style with a joke, which I already, I think, used here years ago, but I will give it, please believe me, I will give to it here a different twist. There is a well-known joke about Jews meeting uh, on Saturday in a synagogue, which I think even the Rida uses it somewhere. I'm, you know the one about where they, okay, the joke is this one. They all uh, uh, publicly declare their limitations and so on in front of others. And first, a rich Jewish merchant says, oh God, I'm nobody, I'm not worthy of your attention, I'm nothing. Then the rabbi, mighty rabbi, also reaches, oh God, I'm also worthy of nothing, I'm nothing, blah, blah. And then a poor ordinary Jew says, in a little bit scared way, dear God, but I'm also a nothing. And one of the two rich guys kicks the other and said, but who this guy think that he is, that he can also say that he is nothing, you know? That's political correctness. What is wrong with it? Literally, I experienced the same situation in the United States when I was already 15, 20 years ago at a meeting, which was this, the worst of anti-Eurocentric political correctness. One speaker after the other, all of them white affluent liberals, were confessing, oh, we are the worst white people, we are, we are responsible for everything, colonialism, racism, and so on, and so on. One exceeding the other, we killed Native Americans, blacks, we ruined Latin America, we are it. And then a good friend of mine, I love him, his name is Jeremy Gleick, he's one of the bright black new philosophers, where I even don't want to use the term black. He's simply a very good philosopher. He wrote an excellent book on, on echoes in art of Haiti revolution, to Saint Leverture and so on. Okay, he stood up and said there, but wait a minute, we blacks also have our own sins, you know. What about uh, Louis Farrakhan, black fundamentalism and so on? And it was consternation among, like, who does he think, like, exactly like the rich rabbi, who does he think that he is, that he can also say that they are nothing? No, sorry, we whites have a monopoly on being nobody. And you know what's the racist trick here? The racist trick here is that the white people's respect for blacks is they love the black or Inuits or Native Americans, whatever, to assert their particular identity. Yes, your dances, your noble traditions, and so on. But secretly, the more you humiliate yourself, we are guilty Europeans, the more you reserve, maintain for yourself the position of universality, which is why regularly I experience this. Those 
white liberals who are most critical of uh, white racism uh, are always again absolutely supportive of of uh, of uh, identity politics of those down there, but you know where secret claim to universality comes up, reasserts itself. That they are, like in the case that I quoted, they are always the ones who keep for themselves this slightly subordinated position of judging the other. You should develop your particular identity, but we will be the judges if you really are doing it or if you are still caught in colonialism and so on and so on. You know, so this radical self-criticism is a fake. And what's my solution here? Precisely what my friend was doing at that meeting. Blacks or other races do not need their identity politics. I find this repellent when white liberals visit some Native American tribe and say, oh my God, you live a poorer life, but it's much more authentic. I'm disgusted by our consumerism and so on. Somebody told me that he was part of this group that a Native American gave him a perfect answer. Okay, let's change places. Give me your villa in Los Angeles and move to my stinking uh, small cabin there and so on. You know that... Uh, 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 the real fight against racism is not a coexistence of particular identities. It's a struggle of universalities. The black people should say, no, it's not your particular mode of existence which disturbs us. It's the universality that comes with it. We should not fight for our particular identity. We should fight to redefine your universality. And that's the struggle today, the struggle for universality. Genosse, thank